Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. But when it comes to this yeah. particular topic, that technology is addictive and hijacking our brains, it's rubbish. It's, it's promoted by people who have an agenda. It's promoted by publications, ironically enough, who are making money the same exact way that these companies do, selling attention, right? The atten these are attention merchants, just like Facebook and YouTube, the New York Times or a publication online also sells yeah. eyeballs. And guess what? Fear sells. And it's nothing new. It's a tried and true tactic to get attention, to tell you that technology is melting your brain. Today, it's Facebook and video games. Uh -huh. Before that, it was television. Before that, it was comic books, the pinball machine, the novel, the written word, for God's sakes. All of these things were supposed <laughs> to melt our minds. And, and, may, and, and literally, Socrates says that the written word will enfeeble wow. men's minds. But you know what? The human species adapts and adopts. I am very optimistic when it comes to our future, if we know what to do. I will admit, I will definitely concede that if you don't know what to do in this day and age, yeah. they're going to get you. No doubt about it. They understand what makes you click and what makes you tick better right. than you understand yourself. But the antidote to impulsiveness, the antidote to all of these addictive and hijacking algorithms that are going to make you do all this terrible stuff, the antidote to impulsiveness uh -huh. is forethought. If you know what to do, you are way more powerful than these companies yeah. will ever be. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Nir, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book out called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, a subject that everybody who is listening knows that I am incredibly passionate about because it's something I've struggled with my whole life. Uh, but before we get into all of that, I want to ask you something that I think is always interesting to learn from people who are immigrants or children of immigrants, and that is what mm. did your parents do for a living and how did that influence and shape what you've decided to do with your life? Yeah, that that is actually a terrific question because... Uh, it is a, a, you know, being an immigrant to this country, especially when you get stuck with a weird name like I have, and no offense, you also have an unusual name for yeah. a typical American. I grew up in Orlando, Florida, right? People had no idea what to make of me at all. So, yeah. um, and I left Israel when I was three years old. So my, uh, my parents, uh, my father started a spark plug business, uh, made a little money on that. And then uh, that's what funded his trip to America to, to pursue the American dream. And then he started a, a business in the pool supply uh, industry. And uh, yeah, and my, and my mom was a, an art teacher in Israel. And then when she came to America, her English wasn't good enough to continue being a teacher. So she was a homemaker. 
Yeah. So based on, on their experience, what advice did they give you growing up as, you know, you know, when you're a kid, like, is it like a typical sort of Indian, Asian immigrant things like become a doctor or engineer, or, you know, will disown you? <laughs> um, you know, that's certainly a, so the, the Jewish guilt is in full effect in my yeah. family. And so there's I'm sure there's analogs and my wife happens to be a first generation uh, American of, of Chinese descent. And uh-huh. uh, it's interesting because I always thought I'd marry a, a Jewish girl. And yet I found so much more in common with a first generation immigrant uh, who happens to be from China because we have such a, a similar mentality in terms of work ethic and our our, uh, our relationship with material possessions and and a lot of, you know, and, and a big part of familial obligation of, of coming and pursuing the American dream. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I don't think it was so much. I hear in, in, with other, from other folks how there is this mentality of, oh, if you're not a, a lawyer or a doctor, then you're a failure. But I don't know if that was in full effect <laughs> in my household. But we definitely did have an ethic of uh, aspiring for some kind of entrepreneurship. Um, mm. there's, there's a term in Yiddish uh, that, that is called being a putz. Uh, yeah. A putz is like a sucker. And you don't want to be the putz. <laughs> and so part of, part of why uh, my father was so entrepreneurial is that he, he didn't want to have to rely on someone else to feed him for his mm. daily bread. Yeah. He wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I think that is something that I definitely uh, took as a value from, from my parents. It's funny because Jerry Colonna said virtually the exact same thing in just different words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just finished talking to him. So I, I think there's something about this that uh, draws those of us who don't fit into normal systems uh, into this kind of stuff. But I, we'll, we'll get to the, you know, your career and what's led up to this point. Uh, you mentioned your wife is Chinese. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that you, you, know, you make a, you know, references to your kids and all that in the book. And we'll talk a little bit about you know, dealing with that from a, a digital standpoint. But what I wonder is... You know, from a cultural standpoint, you know, you've got two different cultures coming together. How do you integrate the two cultures and how do you pass on what's important to you to your kids? Because, you know, I always think to myself, if I don't marry an Indian girl, the first thing that's going to go is language. And I'm 100% sure of that. And, you know, I mean, I see it a little bit with my sister already because her husband is Bengali and, uh, you know, we're from South India. And I'm like, oh, wow. Like, I mean, she's picking up little bits of Bengali here and there. But I wonder, I was like, huh, like, I wonder, is she going to teach her kids our language? Are they going to teach their kids Bengali or are neither of those things going to get passed on? Yeah. Wow. This is, this is a great topic. I, I have to admit, I didn't expect to talk about this. I think it's fascinating. I'm glad we're going here. Um, but, but so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, it's always tricky to talk about this stuff, uh, from a generalizations point of view. So let me just say that everything I'm saying right now has nothing to do with how I think anyone else should live. Okay. This is Mm -hmm. completely autobiographical. I'm not giving anyone advice. I'll give you advice on how to be indistractable. (laughs) I'll give you advice on on (laughs) how to build habit forming products. That's what I write books about when it comes to this particular topic of integrating cultures and raising your kids uh, w- w- in, in a, a culturally informed way. This is just totally autobiographical. And so uh-huh. in, in my relationship with my wife, and we've been married about 20 years now, almost coming up on 20 years now. Um, so we, we've really grown up together. I mean, we, we met when we were 18 years old. And um, uh, it was a, a, a big issue for us because, you know, a lot of Jewish people, uh, especially those that come from Israel, my great grandparents um, uh, were essentially kicked out of of Europe, and uh, my grandparents came to Israel as as children uh, and helped found the country. I mean, they were there before 1948, before the founding of the country, and so there's a very strong guilt trip, I would say, <laughs> that goes from one generation to the next around how important it is to 
marry inside uh, the, the the religion. And I can't mm-hmm. write either. You know, there's a whole Holocaust thing yeah. <laughs> that that no one can can uh, escape from. It's 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 very right. palpable in in uh, at least in my household it was. And so it was just always like it was just assumed that that I would marry a Jewish girl, and um and, and of course nothing wrong with with Jewish girls. I didn't you know avoid them in any way. I just happened to fall in love with a girl who who wasn't Jewish. And um personally like the the while the culture is very significant, it's the way I grew up. Uh, I don't necessarily um, subscribe to the supernatural aspects of Judaism. That that doesn't that doesn't speak to me, uh, and so. When, when Julie and I met, um, uh, and I, I knew that this was the girl that I wanted to be with for the rest of my life, uh, this was a really big issue. In fact, we, we broke up for a while because I hadn't reconciled how I could um, you know, have a life with this person I wanted to live with uh, and who I loved more than anybody else I'd ever met, and yet I'd have to give up what seemed to be my culture, my identity. And so at first, we, we tried the whole conversion route. Uh, Julie was such a great sport. She... Uh, she went through the whole conversion process uh, to try and to try and make that work out, and it didn't work out for us. We we couldn't get past this the supernatural stuff that uh, uh, you know. One day she at the end of the class she turned to me and said, "Okay, I've taken the class. You tell me, do you believe this stuff? Like, do you actually think this stuff really happened?" <laughs> I said, "No, I'm sorry, I don't. <laughs> You're right. Uh, so why you know why am I asking you to convert when I don't? You know, you have to tell the rabbis you believe, and I couldn't tell the rabbis yeah. that, and I couldn't ask her to do it either." And so she, she came up with a, a really fantastic insight, which was that religions evolve. They've always evolved. Nobody has a monopoly on any one religion. The Orthodox Jews don't own it. It's always changed. The Judaism or Hinduism or Christianity, every one of them was different 100 years ago, certainly 1,000 years ago. So they continue to evolve. And so we, we found a denomination of Judaism called secular humanism. That doesn't require you to believe in anything supernatural, but still preserves the culture. And so um, that's how we raise my daughter, to, to answer your question. We, we are grounded in the traditions of Judaism, but if she wants to believe or not to believe mm. in any of the, the, the supernatural stuff that in, is involved in the stories, that's her prerogative. We don't, we don't make her say things that she doesn't believe, uh, which was not the case in mm-hmm. my family. Uh, you know, we were we had to say the prayers exactly mm-hmm. as they were written, <laughs> whether we <laughs> believed them or not. Uh, and so yeah. we don't we don't make my daughter yeah. do that. And the good thing is, that's to me. I've I've now come to to realize, and thanks to Julie to getting me here, is that this is what all religions have always done. They have always evolved to their environments. And so we are Americans first. I mean, we are really proud Americans. I love mm-hmm. this country so much. And I'm, I'm a naturalized citizen. Uh, I love its ideals. I, I love what it stands for. We got lots of problems, certainly. But um, I think we're Americans yeah. first. But we are, uh, our household is uh, rooted in the the ethics of uh, the Judeo-Christian, uh, uh, or the Judeo um, history and the, the people of, of Judaism more than necessarily a, a supernatural being. Yeah. It's funny because I think that for me, the first thing to go would be religion. And, you know, I've always said my primary gripe with religion, particularly Mm. because we're Indian, is that it's time consuming, Mm. especially if you're Indian. Like, it's incredibly time consuming. (laughs) Just go to an Indian wedding and you'll see this. Um, But, yeah, it's it's one of those things I I am always curious about with immigrants in terms of how that plays out. So, you know, what in the world led you to the work that you 
do. Um, I do have a funny way that I want to get to, to this book in particular, but what's been the path that led you to doing books and everything else that you're doing? Well, before we get to that, though, I'm so curious about how you're thinking about it. Can we, can we spend a few minutes? Yeah, please, I would love to hear how you have sorted this out for yourself. I, you're not married yet? Or no, ever. I'm not married. <laughs> okay, too. <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't been married. And so, so that's kind of one of those things where, so in my mind, I've kind of accepted that, okay, you know what? If I don't marry an Indian girl, a lot of this is going to go like it's, mm-hmm. it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some funny things that I think about, right? Because if, you know, like, so, so for example, and there's this really interesting scene in the movie, the namesake and the book is a thousand times better. I don't know if you've ever read mm-hmm. it or heard it, but I think it, yeah, I saw the movie. I didn't read it. Yeah. So Jhumpa Lahiri, the book is, is a thousand times better, mainly because when you read the book for the first time and you've seen Harold and Kumar go to white castle, you mm-hmm. kind of picture a very different Gogol than Cal Penn. And mm-hmm. so he's kind of this odd character, but there's one scene in particular where he brings uh, one of his girlfriends home uh, and she's a white girl. And, you know, he, he warns her beforehand, no kissing, no touching, like all this other stuff. And, you know, it was funny because, uh, you know, when my sister brought her, her now husband home for the first time, it was pretty obvious that he would sleep in another room and she would sleep in another room. It was like, yeah, you know, that's just what we do. Mm-hmm. And I always wondered in my mind, I was like, huh, like if I brought a girl who wasn't Indian to the house, she would probably be like, what the hell? Uh, why are you, why are you not staying in the same room as me? And one of my friends from college actually decided to use me as his test case with his own parents for this. Hmm. He put me and a girlfriend in a bedroom, uh, when we were going to a friend's wedding and he's like, yeah, my parents don't like you. And I'm like, why? He's like, cause you slept in the same room as your girlfriend at their house. I was like, you put us there. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is the night, you know, prior Another friend got so drunk that he hit his head on the cement. We had to go like get stitches in his head at the hospital. They're all like, they, yeah, they love him. Oh, man. <laughs> Which so, so it's funny because these are the, the sort of, you know, we're kind of thinking out loud about this. But, yeah. uh, you know, those are the, those are the things that, that I think about it is, you know, what are those subtle nuances going to be like that? anybody who was your same ethnicity would just be like, oh yeah, I get it. Um, yeah. By the way, speaking of, I get it. This happened to me yeah. <laughs> when, when I first visited, uh, Julie's parents, this is exactly the circumstance. I, I had to sleep outside or I couldn't sleep in her room when I visited her parents. Yeah. house. The funny thing is, uh, I, and this might be, again, this is, you know, all advice is autobiographical. So I, I will say this might just be something that happened in our family, but, um, you know, we did it for a few nights. I slept on the on the couch outside in the living room. Uh-huh. But then after a few nights, it was like, come on, who are we kidding? Right? <laughs> Her parents. And so maybe maybe the 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 fear that we have of what our parents might think, yeah. what they might do, how they might behave, um, maybe it's a little bit overblown because, you know, we were we we talked about this at length before I actually visited, but then when it actually came down to it, you know, we respected their rules, it was under their roof, we did what they said. Yeah. But even they, after a few nights, were like, okay, whatever. Like, who are we kidding? We know what you guys do when you're off at college, right? <laughs> so who are we kidding? Uh, and and some of that is that, you know, the realities of of coming to America, we have to remember, that was their choice. Yeah. We came here as, I don't know, but when you came to America, it sounds like you've been here a very long time based on your accent. Yeah. 19, so, I mean, we probably, so we left, my parents left India in 1978, but it was like Australia, mm-hmm. Canada, then Texas, and we landed here in 1986. So you, you were a so. kid. It wasn't your choice to come here. It wasn't my choice yeah. to come here. It wasn't my, my uh, wife's choice to be born here. That's a choice immigrants make. That's the price you pay for the American dream. And that's, mm-hmm. and, and we don't often talk about that. We think about that as children of immigrants as like what we are doing to our parents. Remember, our parents did this to us. And for me personally, <laughs> it's not, you laugh because you say, oh, but they've given us so much. Like, thank goodness for the American dream. Yes, but everything comes at a price. Nothing is for free. The price yeah. of pursuing the American dream is that you give up your heritage in the way it was defined for you before you came. You will not be the same person 
that you would have been had you been born in India. I would not, or, or, or stayed in India, I should say. I would not be the same person by far yeah. if my parents had never left Israel. I would be a completely different person. That's the price you pay as, as an immigrant. And that, that's, that's yeah. part of this whole equation. Um, and then the last thing I would say too is that remember, wow. for all the worry uh, we, we, we put our parents through and cultural, you know, changing and evolving a culture and marrying someone outside our heritage. There's always worse <laughs> we have to compare to. So for example, uh, my oldest brother is gay uh -huh. and he came out back in, uh, 1989. And I remember this because back then, uh, on the news, they called AIDS gay cancer. Wow. It wasn't even widely accepted that AIDS was, uh, was associated with HIV. This was very early mm -hmm. days. Being gay was very different than it is today. And so, you know, it, it, it was, this was a, a crisis in my family when my brother came out. Now, of course, my parents love him. He has a boyfriend. They're so happy for him. And the fact that his boyfriend is not Jewish is like on <laughs> nobody's radar. They're just happy he met somebody that he can enjoy his life with. Yeah. Uh, so we have to keep things in perspective too, that, that wow. uh, what parents ultimately, I think across the board really want for their children yeah. is that their children are happy. Yeah. So speaking of the American dream, what was yours, you know, like college up until writing books and everything that you're doing? Like how did you get here? Yeah. So my path, um, let's see. So, uh, I went to undergrad, uh, met my, my future wife. Uh, we, uh, I went off to, um, uh, consulting. I worked at BCG for several years. Uh, she worked as a banker at, uh, JP Morgan Chase. And uh, we did we did those two professions for a while and got really tired of them. <laughs> it was very hard, very very hard work. And uh, the the I'd always wanted to do something entrepreneurial. And uh, the first chance we got, we started a business together. This was in the solar energy business back when uh, the United States was entering the, the the second Iraq War. And we had some some premonition that oil prices would spike. This might be a good time to be an alternative energy. And we essentially set up what uh, Solar City does today, uh, very early days. Uh, so this was back in 2002, no, sorry, 2003, uh, we set this up. And so we basically professionalized uh, what at the time, there were no solar subsidies. We professionalized this, this company, um, uh, ran that for a few years. We got an offer by a private equity firm to, to buy us out. And that kind of put us on our feet. Uh, and then, uh, I applied to one school for business school, went to Stanford for business school. If, if it had not gotten into Stanford, we would have just kept running the business. Um, but that was an opportunity that, that at the time was, was uh, too good for me to pass up because I was, I was reading in the wall street journal about, uh, this company, Facebook and, uh, Google and these people who were somehow, uh, delivering their products online. And it did, I, I was just so infatuated with how could they, you know, make a business by delivering bits as opposed to atoms, right? I was running this huge warehouse with a crew and inventory and cost of goods sold and all this stuff. And I just thought, oh my God, wouldn't it be amazing if you could just write code? <laughs> That'd be so much cooler. And so um, the entree into that world was was going to Stanford. Uh, I didn't even know what a venture capitalist was when I when I got to Stanford. I remember asking my friend, like, what exactly is this? Everybody keeps saying venture capitalist. What, what does that mean? <laughs> um, so went to business school, started another company uh, with my wife and uh, two other co-founders. Uh, that company was in the intersection of gaming and advertising. Uh, and it was, we started in 2007, back when apps, when you said the word apps, uh, you, you didn't mean mobile apps. You didn't mean apps on your phone like we do today because yeah. the Apple App Store didn't exist yet. <laughs> it wasn't out until 2008. Uh, apps back then meant Facebook apps. 
And so we mm-hmm. were uh, in the virtual goods business back when people thought that that was a crazy, like what the heck are virtual goods? Uh, but today, of course, virtual selling virtual goods is, is a multi-billion dollar global industry. Uh, but we got started in that in that field pretty early on in 2007. Uh, by 2012, uh, that company was acquired. And then 2012, I kind of stopped and said to myself, well, what do I want to do next? Um, and I had this thesis around the importance of uh, habit-forming products, that I had a, a belief mm-hmm. that um, uh, that the products that would be the most important, the ones that would, would capture markets and have a competitive advantage, would be the ones who could create consumer habits. Because I could see what was going on. We were going yeah. from desktops to laptops to mobile devices to wearable devices. And today we have these auditory devices like Amazon Alexa, et cetera. The interface has shrunk. And I could see this happening. And I realized that as the interface shrinks, the amount of real estate we have to trigger people, to send them a message, to get them to do stuff, decreases. So it becomes increasingly important for us to engage them with a habit, with something that they do on their own, with with, uh, unprompted user engagement, as opposed to constantly having to send them pings and dings and rings. And that's exactly what we see today, right? If you are not on someone's home yeah. screen, uh, if you're on, you know, page three or four of their of of, of their apps, uh, you might as well not even exist. They they don't remember you even exist, and so mm-hmm. you have to have your product used habitually, uh, or or your business is really going to yeah. suffer. So I said, okay, that's my investment thesis. That's what I'm going to figure out. What I'm going to do next uh, with allocating my human capital, uh, I wanted to start a habit forming product of some kind, but I had no filter to understand what type of products require a habit and then how to build a habit forming product. And so I looked and looked and looked, couldn't find a book on it and said, well, I guess I'm going to have to write that book. Uh, I didn't intend to write the book. I yeah. intended to just, you know, read everything I could about the topic. And, uh, you know, I started blogging about it at nearandfar.com. And um, turns out a lot of other people were interested in this topic as well. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> I and so I got a and I, I was very fortunate. My, my timing was really good. I had a lot of friends at these companies uh, like Facebook and, and um, mm-hmm. uh, Twitter and uh, Uber, these companies that were, you know, yeah. had designed their products and services using consumer psychology. So I kind of had a front row seat to talk to a lot of these folks. And of course, my, my contacts from my last business. Right. And so uh, uh, one day I got an email from a, a professor of mine, a former professor of mine, Baba Shiv at Stanford. And he said, look, I really like your stuff. Let's teach a class together. And so uh, he was really uh-huh. generous and kind of gave me carte blanche to design a class around behavioral design. And so I taught that with him uh, for several years. Then I moved over to the design school at Stanford. Uh, that kind of um, you know teaching there uh, helped me organize the different parts of the book into a methodology uh, that uh, then we published the book uh, yeah. in 2014. So we're just coming up on the five-year anniversary. And shortly wow. after publishing Hooked, uh, I started thinking about this other problem that I was having, uh, no longer the problem of, of how to build habit-forming products, yeah. but how to put distraction in its place. And so for the next five yeah. years, I, I've been working on indistractable. Okay, so yeah, so I, I want to talk about that because I, I thought that was like a really interesting transition. And so this is, you know, as I was thinking about this, this is like the metaphor that came to my mind. Have you ever been to Costa Rica? No. Okay, so in Costa Rica, the roads are really bad. Like they're really mm-hmm. shitty. Um, And what's funny is there will literally be a pothole somewhere and a hundred yards down the road from where that pothole is, is a guy who fixes Mm. tires. And I feel like that's effectively what you've done here. Like you gave us hooked, which is, Hey, I created the pothole. And by the way, here's how you fix the tire. 
with Indistractable. So I, and I, that was the thing that made me think, and it's such an interesting transition. But I want to kind of go back to some of what has happened as a byproduct. Wait, can, but can I take issue with that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that would be true if I caused the potholes. That's what I was going to ask you is, is, you know, how much of Hooked was based on what had already happened, but how much has happened because of Hooked? Yeah. So, you know, we got to remember too, that, uh, the vast majority of products out there, uh, are not addicting or even habituating anybody, Mm -hmm. right? People who have built product know how hard it is to get people to change behavior, right? The, if you've been in the trenches and you've built an app or built a website, consumer behavior, getting people to do what you want them to do is really hard. You know, the vast majority of products we use, think about, uh, you know, interacting with your local business, uh, local, uh, your local government, enterprise software. These products don't suck us in, not the way that Facebook and YouTube and Instagram do. No, no, no. They don't suck us in. They just suck. Mm-hmm. And so the real goal <laughs> of Hooked was to democratize these techniques. So the people who use Hooked, it's not the gaming companies. It's not even Facebook or YouTube. They've known these techniques for years. The people who use Hooked are the people who are using it to build healthy habits in users' lives. That's who, I mean, the case study, for God's sakes, the case study in Hooked, in the first edition, is the Bible. The Bible app is the case study. (laughs) And the reason I put the Bible app in there, one, it's, it's, it's probably the most uh, overlooked app out there. I mean, the engagement yeah. rate on this app is through the roof. It's still one of the most popular apps in the world. Hundreds of millions of people use this app. And they use the hook model. They didn't know they were using it, but the more I analyzed it, I mean, that's part of how I came to understand the hook model. I, I took Facebook and YouTube and uh, Instagram and all this Slack and all these products and tried to figure out what they have in common and the Bible app. And that's mm-hmm. how I started to understand these four key steps in the hook model. Now. What you yeah. think about the Bible app is really telling in terms of whether you think I was helping to create potholes or not. Some <laughs> right. people, when, they, when, I, when I tell them, oh, I help, uh, you know, the, the, the Bible app, in fact, uses this methodology, uh, they think that's yeah. wonderful because religion helps people uh, find meaning in their life. It helps them build community. It helps them live out their values. It's a wonderful thing. But if you're the kind of person who says, actually, organized religion is terrible and it caused conflicts and division, then you're going to hate the Bible app. And you know what? The same metaphor carries over to all sorts of things. So, you know, Facebook, for example, a lot of people get a lot of benefit out of Facebook. Some people Uh sometimes go overboard on Facebook. What I want to steer clear of is this binary thinking that I think is way Mm -hmm. too pervasive this world. Good versus evil. That's not the real world. In any topic, the answer to most problems in life is it depends. (laughs) It depends. Is Facebook bad bad for you? It depends how you use it, when you use it, who's using it. Uh And so it's it's not quite so black and white. And that's really what indistractable, uh, where that leaves on or where that leads into indistractable is that I wanted to give folks a toolkit for how to make sure that we can get the best out of technology without letting it get the best of us. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what, what I wonder is then when you hear about people like Cal Newport, who are huge mm-hmm. advocates of what he calls digital minimalism, you know, um, can point to like one sort of study after another. And he even said, he says that, you know, you could get the benefits of using this thing without necessarily being addicted to it. But he said that's really hard to do simply because of the way that these products are designed. So the, the question is, and he said, and the problem is, he says, that if you change the addictive design of it, it'll be detrimental to the bottom line uh, of many of these companies. 
So when you hear the sort of Cal Newport argument, what is your sort of response to that, I wonder? Yeah. So um, first of all, you know, people can disagree without being disagreeable. So I have a lot yeah. of respect for Cal. Uh, he blurbed my book. Mm -hmm. I did not blurb his. <laughs> Interesting. And I didn't blurb his because he doesn't understand what addiction is and is not. Ah. Addiction is this word that we use so much today that it has become essentially meaningless. Addiction does not mean I like to use something a lot. Addiction does not even mean I overuse things a lot. Addiction means that you have a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. It is a pathology. The words we use matter a lot. And when we use words like addiction or hijacking the brain, we are teaching people that they are powerless, that these things control us. And that is, in no uncertain terms, 100% pure bullshit. It is not true. And I'm telling you this as an industry insider, not a professor who has never built products before. As an industry insider, I will tell you these techniques are good. They are effective on the margins at helping people do things they want to do and for lack yeah. of good design previously haven't done. But that doesn't mean people are puppets on a string. It does not mean that we can get people to do anything they want. It does not mean that we are idiots. You can fool somebody a few times, but eventually if you sell them a product or service that hurts them, guess what? They taper back or they use yeah. your competition. And so that's what we're finding people are doing as we speak. The human species is amazing in its ability to do two things. We can adapt our behavior and we can adopt new tools to fix the bad aspect of the last generation of technology. So let me just be very clear. I'm not a tech apologist. There are a lot yeah. of things that tech companies are doing wrong. They need to be held accountable for their monopoly status, their use of data inappropriately, lots of things that I think we should understand and hold these companies to account for. But when it comes to this yeah. particular topic, that technology is addictive and hijacking our brains, it's rubbish. It's, it's promoted by people who have an agenda. It's promoted by publications, ironically enough, who are making money the same exact way that these companies do, selling attention, right? The atten these are attention merchants, just like Facebook and YouTube, the New York Times or a publication online also sells yeah. eyeballs. And guess what? Fear sells. And it's nothing new. It's a tried and true tactic to get attention to tell you that technology is melting your brain. Today, it's Facebook and video games. Uh -huh. Before that, it was television. Before that, it was comic books, the pinball machine, the novel, the written word, for God's sakes. All of these things were supposed <laughs> to melt our minds. And, 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 and literally, Socrates says that the written word will enfeeble wow. men's minds. But you know what? The human species adapts and adopts. I am very optimistic when it comes to our future, if we know what to do. I will admit, I will definitely concede that if you don't know what to do in this day and age, yeah. they're going to get you. No doubt about it. They understand what makes you click and what makes you tick better right. than you understand yourself. But the antidote to impulsiveness, the antidote to all of these addictive and hijacking algorithms that are going to make you do all this terrible stuff, the antidote to impulsiveness uh -huh. is forethought. If you know what to do, you are way more powerful than these companies yeah. will ever be. Cool fact, 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. A lot can happen in 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly 3 years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/host. So, you know, it's funny. I, I didn't want to get here first, but one of we, we literally just, you know, at, today when we're talking just aired a new conversation with Cal. Uh And, you know, mm. I, I have found that a lot of his ideas have been very valuable for me personally as somebody who struggles with this challenge, right? Um, and found, I think that the thing that struck me most, and I wonder how you think about this as a father, um, was as somebody who struggled with depression and anxiety, like extended periods of time away from this stuff did really help immensely in terms of a lot of the things that, you know, we find are, are causing problems, particularly like in a younger generation, right? Where you're seeing, you know, sort of these rises of, of you know, like anxiety, depression, mental health issues. And so, you know, I wonder how you think about that. Cause I know you did actually write about children in the book. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a whole section on the book on how to raise indistractable kids. And, you know, again, I want to make sure I'm very, very clear here. If a product or service is not serving you, I want you to find ways to stop yeah. using it or moderate the use of that product or service. Okay. I'm not an advocate for using any of these products, just like I'm not an advocate for using or for watching television or reading the news or watching television. 
any of these things can be distractions. Work can be a distraction. The problem is we need to go deeper. And, and again, I'm, I, I'm certainly not criticizing uh, any particular author's work, but I think that on the whole, there's a widening gap between what the academic literature says and what the self-help community says. Mm. We've been told that the solution is a digital detox. It's a 30-day program. Get rid of it. That's bad advice. And the reason it's bad advice is for the same reason that uh, I learned when I, so I used to be clinically obese uh-huh. and I would continually go every few months on some fad diet. Okay. No junk food uh, for, for 30 days, or, you know, I'm just going to drink green tea and vinegar or whatever it was, some stupid fad diet that I used to do again and again and again. And I, I of course, you know, you, you know what happens on day 31, yeah. you make up for lost time. <laughs> you, you eat everything you could possibly see. That's why these diets don't work. Yeah. And everything we've been told to date is, a, is pointing the finger at the tools of distraction, at uh-huh. what's called the proximate cause, not the root cause. Mm-hmm. And that's what Indistractable starts with. I mean, if there's one big lesson for the book, it's look for the root cause, not the proximate cause. Yeah. And it's only by understanding why we get distracted. And the definition uh-huh. of, dis- of, of distraction, for me, is much bigger than just tech distraction. The, right. the Indistractable is not just about tech distraction. Yeah. We have to understand the difference. We have to define the word, first of all. As I mentioned earlier, words really, really matter. So in order to understand what we mean by distraction, we have to understand what distraction is not. So the opposite of, dist- of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Mm. Traction is any action that you take that moves you towards what you want to do, anything you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction. They both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. So traction mo- pulls you towards what you want. Uh-huh. Distraction pulls you away from what you want. Yeah. It's really about intent. It's about what you plan to do. And the reason this is such an important distinction is twofold. One, it reminds us, you notice both words end in the same word. They both end in action. Traction yeah. and distraction end in the word action, meaning these are things that we do, not things that happen to us. Second, it's important to realize that the only way you can define distraction is by understanding what you got distracted from. And so Mm -hmm. I don't make any kind of value judgment, right? I don't say that video games are somehow morally inferior to watching a football game. What's the difference? There is no difference. But why is everybody obsessed with what video games and Facebook are doing to our brains? And we've forgotten about what television or too much, you know, too many reading books or or whatever the the distraction might be. It's not about the tool. It's about Uh why we use the tool. So if you want to watch a football game or play Candy Crush or scroll YouTube, uh, scroll Instagram or watch YouTube videos, great. I'm not going to tell you not to. What I advise yeah. is do it with intent. That's what being indistractable is about. It's about striving to do what it is you say you're going to do. It's about living with personal integrity. And if we just keep it surface level, especially with your question around kids, if we just keep it surface yeah. level, the danger is that we fool ourselves. Look, as a parent of a 10-year-old, I want nothing more than an excuse that I can blame my kids' bad behavior on. It's a sugar high. It's hormones when they're teenagers. It's whatever, 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 whatever. Parents have always been doing this crap. And today, it's TikTok and Instagram. Uh And this blinds us to what's really going on. Our kids are suffering. We need to ask ourselves, why are they turning to distraction? As we need to ask ourselves, why are we doing things we know aren't good for us, right? That's uh-huh. the real question, the deeper why. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. It's funny, like as I'm sitting here listening to you, my thought is I'm like, man, I should just get you and pal to get Cal together on a podcast hey, and have that. you guys debate it. We should probably well, moderate it. <laughs> I'd be happy. I to. think that would be a fascinating conversation. I, I will send this to him and, and we'll <laughs> ask him if he'd be willing to because I think he would. I, I think he's open minded enough that he would actually be willing to yeah, do and that. By, and by the way, look, um, again, like we reasonable people can disagree. What we agree on yeah. is the problem. The problem of distraction yeah. is a real problem out there. I just I think where we differ is is the, is the, is the source of the problem. I think a lot of other folks focus yeah. on the proximate cause. I think that's very dangerous. I think we need to figure out the root cause. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, I mean, you basically talk about these four factors that make any satisfaction we get temporary, right? Which is boredom, our negativity, bias, rumination, and hedonic adaptations. And how does that play into all this idea of distraction? Yeah, I, I make the case that. Uh, our species is not designed for satisfaction. And that's important to know because in the personal development, self-help woo-woo community, we're somehow told that we're supposed to be happy all the time. And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's messed up because it is yeah. not true. We are not supposed to be satisfied. The, the, the few members of our, uh, of Homo sapiens, if they ever existed, who were ever satisfied with life are dead because they were killed by the tribe that we descended from who is never satisfied. Uh, and that lack of satisfaction is not necessarily a bad thing. Remember that wanting, that striving, that craving, this is what helped our species develop breakthroughs in medicine, helped us overturn despots, helped us reach for the stars. That's our natural state is to constantly want more. Now, we can use it to our advantage, we can make the world better, or we can let it get the best of us. But we have to start with this realization that there's nothing wrong with being dissatisfied, with feeling these, these cognitive quirks, what I call these internal triggers of discomfort. It is part of being a human being. And the more it turns out, the more we tell ourselves that we shouldn't be feeling these things, that we should stuff down these emotions, that they're not natural, the, the, the worse off we are. We begin this rumination cycle where we think there's something wrong with us. And that becomes very, very unhealthy. Mm, wow. So you mentioned one other thing. You said by reimagining an uncomfortable trigger, we can disarm it. What did you mean by that? And, and you know, one, how do people identify what an uncomfortable trigger is and, and the behavior that it leads to? Yeah. So let, let's start with the really uh, first principles here. So the, the key question in the book is why do we get distracted? But let's, let's, you know, first of all, I think that's a really interesting question to kind of inspire that curiosity in, in everyone listening. Like to me, this was a really, really good question. By the way, it's a question that Aristotle and Socrates debated 2,500 years ago. They, they called it akrasia, this tendency mm -hmm. that we have to do things against our better interests. And they were trying to figure out why do we do that? And if we, we think to ourselves, you know, the, the truth is there is not a knowledge gap uh, in people's minds today. People basically know what to do. We all know if you want to be healthy, eat right and exercise. If you want to have good relationships, be fully present with people you care about. If you want to be great at your job, do the goddamn work. Right? It's not <laughs> rocket science. And yet we buy book after book and listen to guru after guru because we think they're going to tell us a magic secret. There is no magic secret. The only yeah. thing we need to know is not what to do. We already know what to do. What we need is to figure out why don't we do the things we know we should. Why do we get distracted? Why do we sit down at our desk and we say to ourselves, okay, I'm going to work on that big project. And yet we check email or Slack yeah. channels. Uh, we say to ourselves, I'm going to go out to dinner with my friends because my friends are important to me. And we start checking our phones. We say we're going to work out, but we don't. We do something else. Why? That's the big question of this book. And if we can solve that, wouldn't that be a superpower? 
Like, what could we be capable of if we did everything we said we would do? So that's that's the big question of the book. So to answer that question, we have to answer, why do we get distracted? But let's go a step deeper. First principles. Why do we do anything? What's the nature of motivation? Most people will tell you it's Freud's pleasure principle. Freud said that everything is in the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of, of pain. Jeremy Bentham said something similar. It's all about pursuit of pleasure, avoidance, pain, carrots and sticks. Wrong. Not true. It's not about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It turns out, neurologically speaking, it's pain all the way down. Even the pursuit of pleasure, wanting, craving a positive outcome is itself uncomfortable. It feels destabilizing. This is called the homeostatic response. We feel it physiologically all the time, right? If you're cold, you put on a jacket. If you're hot, you take it off. Uh, if you feel hungry, you feel hunger pangs. That doesn't feel good, so you eat. So the brain prompts us to action when it feels physiological discomfort, okay? The same principle occurs when it comes to psychological discomfort. When you feel uh, lonely, we check Facebook. When you are uncertain, you Google. When you are bored, you check Reddit or podcast or the news or uh, sports scores, whatever. Lots of products and services cater to these uncomfortable internal triggers, these uncomfortable emotional states. So what this means, if all behavior, all behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. And this is where most books, uh, every book that I've read on this topic uh, falls short, is that we don't get to the root cause. The root cause of all our behavior is the desire to escape discomfort. So why aren't we dealing with those root causes? And there's only two ways to deal with those root causes. Either you fix the source of discomfort, you figure out what's causing the pain in your life. And this is absolutely critical when it comes to helping other people like our kids, but also for ourselves. The number one cause of these internal triggers in our life for most people is their workplace. So there's a whole section in the book where I talk about why distraction at work is a symptom of dysfunctional culture. We want to blame it on technology, but let me tell you, there's no correlation between how much technology a company uses and how distracted people feel there because distraction is a symptom of corporate dysfunction, cultural dysfunction. And so we have to fix that source of the problem. That's just one example, but whatever it might be, whatever you're looking to escape from, whether it's with a bottle, whether it's with uh, uh, you know, some other distraction, you know, working too much, watching too many sports, being on Facebook too much, whatever it might be, you have to figure out what you are trying to escape yeah. and either fix the problem or learn to cope with it. And so there are three strategies to yeah. cope with it. You can either reimagine the trigger itself, you can reimagine the task, or you can reimagine your temperament. And that, there's lots of details on how to do that, but that's the basic structure for the first part. Okay. So there, there's, you know, we'll talk specifically, like the funny thing that I thought of immediately was like, oh, like what about people who watch porn? Like, is that yeah. also just fall into this category? And, you know, like, can you, it made me think about, you know, so all, all of the research that has come out about this was like, oh yeah, this is terrible for you. It screws up your relationships. It's like frying your brain. And so you, you know, you basically, I mean, porn is a product that gets people hooked. Um, well, and I wonder how you, how you, how you think about that. So any analgesic can become addictive. Mm. Anything that solves pain can be addictive to someone. Porn, uh, alcohol, um, even cigarettes, turns out the majority of people who use these products are not addicted, 
right? A lot of us have a glass of wine with dinner. Alcohol is the most, one of the, one of the most, short, uh, second to nicotine and heroin, one of the most addictive substances on earth. And yet very few people are alcoholics. How can that be? How can something that's addictive not addict everyone? Well, we see this all the time. A lot of us have a glass of wine with dinner. We're not all alcoholics. A lot of us you know, watch porn sometimes or, or have sex sometimes. We're not all sex addicts. And that's why this yeah. is so ridiculous to keep using this word addictive when we describe technology, because it's not nuanced. It's binary thinking. It's low fidelity thinking by people who are too lazy to think this through or don't know the facts about addiction. Lots of products can addict someone and not addict everyone. So I used to say, when I didn't understand how this really worked, I used to say cigarettes are the, I'm sorry, that the internet is the cigarette of the century. This is a, was, was, uh, Ian Bogos first said this, and, and uh, I, yeah. I don't say that anymore. Because the technology is not like cigarettes. Cigarettes have nicotine in them, which cross the blood-brain barrier uh, and, and have, an, have an effect on the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And they affect decision-making in, in some form. That's not what happens with Facebook or our iPhones. We're not injecting Instagram. We're not freebasing Facebook. These are behaviors, right? <laughs> so we have to keep this in perspective. Yeah. Technology is not like cigarettes. If anything, technology is like cannabis. Why do I say that? We know that THC, the psychotropic uh, substance in cannabis, is not addictive, not in the same way that heroin or nicotine are. They're not addictive. And yet, how is it then that 9% of people who use cannabis have a cannabis use disorder? How can that be? There's nothing addictive about it. And it's the same way with technology, that everything mm -hmm. that solves pain, any analgesic, can become addictive to a certain type of person. So addiction is never about the substance. It's the confluence of three factors, right? Remember, nobody steps on a heroin needle and becomes an addict. That's not how it works. Addicts always have backstories every time. Addiction is the confluence of three things. A person with a predilection for addiction, a product that certainly plays a role, and the pain the person is going through. The person, the product, mm -hmm. and the pain. If you take one of those things out, people lose their addictions, right? If they learn to cope with their discomfort in a healthier manner, if they, if they deal with, uh, with what's going on in their life, this is what trauma-based therapy is all about. You know, people are using substances to get out of their heads, to escape an uncomfortable reality. That's the seat of all addiction. There's much more to this. Mm -hmm. And so this is why it's so harmful. It's disrespectful for people who have a pathology to say that all these things are addicting all of us. It's utter nonsense. And more than that, worse off, it teaches... The 99% of us, 95 to 99% of us who do not have that pathology, that we are somehow incapable of helping ourselves. And that's why this is so dangerous. That's why I'm so passionate about this. Because yeah. when we let people promote this myth that technology is addictive and it's hijacking our brains, it becomes true. It's called learned helplessness. People act accordingly. Mm. They say, well, there's nothing I can do. The big bad algorithms at the big bad technology companies are doing it to me. So those crazy kids, they just, you know, they're all, they're all addicted. There's nothing we can do. And there's nothing I can do because, you know, they've got me too. And so this is what happens, even subconsciously. This is what happens in our minds and why this is so pernicious and dangerous. Yeah, it's funny because now I'm thinking I need to just get you, Stephen Kotler, and Cal Newport all together, like in, in, a, in a panel online and, and just invite people to come and, you know, 
talk about. Well, if, if if they've got two on their side, then I need I need a, I need some backup. Fair so enough, I want you to Johan Johan Hari. Uh, Johan Hari wrote a fantastic book called Lost Connections. Yeah, I wrote uh, that. Really, I've been wanting to get him on the show. Like he's, he is wonderful, and he he says it so well. He says the the opposite of addiction is not sobriety; it's connection. Ah. Uh, because what people turn to when they are in pain is something to take their mind off of that pain. Yeah. That's the nature of addiction. And and I'll give you others. Mark Lewis is a neuroscientist who was a former addict himself. I mean, th- this we, we, we've been fed this, this, this uh, bill of lies uh, back from the 1980s that, you know, just say no and drugs are bad. And it's not about that. It's so ironic, too, that in this time when we want to legalize cannabis, we yeah. want to legislate these technologies. But we're using the same outdated, incorrect point of view about what addiction really is. And it's hurting us. It's making the problem worse. So you you mentioned uh, the sort of three things that we could do, right? One was identity. And I think the other one was around um, task. And I don't remember what the the third one was. the trigger. Yeah, so I, it's funny because I remember that it was. I was trying to remember whose book I had read this in when when you you, know, you said you know the, that what we say to ourselves is vitally important. Like labeling yourself as having poor self control actually leads to self control. Now I don't remember whether it was your book or Adam Alter's book where he said you know if you basically say there's a, a simple difference between somebody who says I can't use you know Facebook or Instagram uh, whenever or you say I don't. And the difference is basically, okay, I don't use this thing on weekends. He said, you're much more likely to be the person who doesn't. Um, and I couldn't remember which of the two books because your quote kind of was a, uh, you know, mirror of that as well. Mm. Yeah. So the, the research has been out for, for a while. Um, it, it's pretty fascinating. Actually, you jumped ahead a little bit. So yeah. there's just to kind of fill people in yeah. for, for the, the, the steps that we pass, because it's important to that we go in order here, because if you jump ahead to some of these techniques, uh, they can actually backfire. So there's there's actually a danger to some of these techniques and people use them, uh, the right techniques at the wrong time and they, they actually find themselves worse off because of it. So just to kind of, you know, paint the picture of what, be, uh, what it takes to be indistractable, it takes four steps. It takes mastering the internal triggers, which is all about you know, gaining control of uh, learning to cope with these uncomfortable emotional states or fixing the source of the problem. The second step is to make time for traction, which we didn't talk about yet, but that's a critically yeah. important step is to make time for traction. And again, if, if how you want to spend your time is with, you know, football or, or Candy Crush or whatever, that's great. As long as you make time to live out your values, critically, critically important and something that the vast majority of people do not do in their day-to-day lives. And then they complain about being distracted when they didn't know what they got distracted from. Uh, the third step is to hack back external triggers. So this is what you know people typically think of when they think about you know getting control of their technology. It's about turning off notifications, et cetera. But what I think a lot of people miss is that the world is full of all kinds of non-tech distractions. So I talk about these eight different environments that uh, that send us external triggers, these pings, dings, and rings that take us off track. So of course, there's the usual suspects of your computer and your cell phone, but also the biggest culprit for most people is the open floor plan office. A mm-hmm. colleague stopping by your desk and saying, hey, what's up? Let's chit chat. That can be a distraction if that's not what you plan to do with your time. Uh, and, right. and this leads to worse results. But of course, we don't talk about that because it's bid, ba- bid bad technology that's doing it to us when there are some you know, very pernicious sources of distraction that we've avoided, that we've been b- blindsided by. Meetings, for mm-hmm. God's sakes. Oh, my God. How many meetings are pure, <laughs> utter distraction? So I tell you yeah. how to hack back external triggers in all these contexts. And then the last step, which, which you just mentioned a technique from, uh, is about preventing distraction with pacts. And so this is where I have to raise a big caution warning sign 
that if you do this prematurely, if you try and use these pre-commitments, these packs, which can be very effective, but only uh-huh. if done after you do the other three steps. So this is kind of the heavy artillery uh, that if you use these prematurely, if you haven't mastered the internal triggers, if you haven't ma- made time for traction, if you haven't hacked back the external triggers, and you jump straight to the the preventing distraction with packs, it's going to backfire. But that being yeah. said, let's say you've done all the other three. You can make three type of packs. The three types of packs are an effort pact, a price pact, and an identity pact. Uh, an effort pact is when we put some bit of friction, something in our way that prevents us from doing something we don't want to do. So for example, in my household, um, we, we were personal to start the discussion. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, kind of end the discussion with something pretty personal, my sex life. My wife and I, as we mentioned, yeah. you know, we've been married for almost 20 years. Uh, a while ago, before I learned these techniques to become indistractable, our sex life was really suffering because we were staying up later and later every night on our computers, on our phones. And so uh, we, we used a pact, an effort pact. We went to the hardware store. We bought a $10 outlet timer and we plugged it into our wall and we plugged in our devices into that, that, that timer. So every night at 10 p.m., my computer, my monitor, my router all shuts off. Now, if I really wanted to, I could unplug and replug and fix it, right? So that it's still on. But now I've inserted a bit of effort so that I don't do what I don't want to do, right? So I don't get distracted. So I don't do something that I'm, I'm doing without intent. So that's an effort pact. A price yeah. pact is when you have some kind of uh, cost and, and uh, we're a little bit running out of time, but, but there's a lot more to be said about price packs. Yeah. But then finally, and what you alluded to, is this identity pact, which to me was the most interesting and most surprising category of the, of the three. An identity pact is when we use our self-image to prevent us doing something we don't want to do. And so we're coming full circle here back to religion because a lot of this research comes yeah. from organized religion because there's, there's this interesting phenomenon that adherents of faith, you know, the people who, who are, are, are real followers, somehow they don't have to expend a lot of self-control, a lot of willpower uh, when they don't do things that many other people do. So for example, a devout Muslim doesn't ask themselves, hmm, I wonder if I should have a beer today. No, they are a devout Muslim. They don't drink alcohol. Uh, an Orthodox yeah. Jew doesn't say, hmm, should I have that BLT today? Should I have that bacon or not? No, they're an Orthodox Jew. It's something they do yeah. not do. So there's a, there's a joke that goes, how do you know someone's a vegetarian? Don't worry, they'll tell you, right? So, so our identity, yeah. by the way, I was a vegetarian for five years, so I'm, I'm poking fun at myself here as well. But I can tell you that while I was a vegetarian, <laughs> not eating meat was no big deal because I was a vegetarian. Uh-huh. Vegetarians don't eat meat. It was part of my identity. So this leads us to why I call the book Indistractable. Yeah. That's the new moniker. That's what we can call ourselves, right? If we don't return messages instantly, right? And your friends say, hey, how come you didn't text me right back? Yeah. I'm indistractable. Uh, when you use these techniques, I have a, every copy of the book comes with a screen sign that you can put on your monitor at work to tell people you're indistractable, right? I wear a t-shirt uh, many days when I don't feel like going in the, to the gym. I wear the shirt that says indistractable across my chest to remind me I am indistractable. It's part of who I am because it turns out, and this is you know one thing you, you, you saw in the book, this is not personal anecdote. This is not, oh, it worked for me. It's going to work for everybody. Everything in the book is backed by peer review yeah. research. Uh, and, and so this technique that you mentioned earlier of mm-hmm. being the kind of person uh, who says, I don't versus I can't, is, and tying it to identity 
is an incredibly powerful way to make sure we don't get distracted. Yeah. So I know you got to get going. I mean, this has been packed with nuggets and, you know, I recommend anybody who's, who's um, listening to buy the book because it is, it was really, there's a lot of really thought provoking insight, but I think I got so much more just from this conversation. There's one thing I wanted to have you uh, tell our listeners about, because I remember why I went and looked for it and, you know, in the spirit of confessional, I mean, like, you know, I, I smoke my fair share of cannabis, like, mm-hmm. and every now and then I use, you know, the tobacco from it to, to roll, you know, spliffs, but sometimes it'll be like, oh, early morning, uh, tempted to roll it, you know, just with tobacco, not because, you know, I want to get high. And you mentioned this thing called the kitchen safe. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah. So the kitchen safe, you, you might, you might remember this from, uh, it was on an episode of Shark Tank. So the kitchen yeah. safe is, is an example of an effort packed. And again, this is the heavy artillery. This is something we have to do after we've done the other three steps. But the kitchen safe is basically this little plastic box. You can buy it on Amazon. I think they changed the name. Now it's called K-Safe. Um, and yeah. basically, you whatever you put into the K-Safe, it could be a, a muffin, it could be a donut, it could be a spiff, whatever it is that you don't want access to, you put it inside yeah. and you set a timer for how long you want to be locked out of getting access to it. So this yeah. is an effort packed because what you're doing is you're making a pre-commitment. Remember, maybe maybe the, if there's one thing I want everyone to write down, it's that the antidote to impulsive, uh, sorry, the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. So what you're doing is thinking ahead, right? This is one thing that our species does better than any other animal on earth. We can predict the future. So predicting ahead, I'm going to get tempted. I'm going to get potentially distracted. I'm going to take a step now to prevent me from doing something I don't want to do later. You put whatever it is you don't want access to inside the case safe, you put on the lid, you set the timer, and it doesn't let you have access to that thing for a set period of time. Now, you could take a hammer and you could bash it open, right? right. But and that'd be expensive sixty dollars right. to get your exactly. So that's that's an effort packed. You put a bit of friction, a yeah. bit of effort between what it is you don't want to do. Mm. Wow. Wow. Uh, this has been amazing. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it is the desire to want to have one mind, one's mind changed. Um, that's something that, you know, Carol Dweck calls the, uh, the growth mindset. Uh, I think that is such a beautiful attribute. And I, I, I love Carol Dweck's research into this. She wrote a, a great book on it as well. But this idea that, you know, the idea of wanting to have your world change, wanting your apple cart to be turned over. I love that sensation. Uh, and I love to give it to other people. <laughs> Sometimes people don't always want to have their minds changed, but that to me is is a huge compliment when someone can spend a time the time to me w- with me to explain something they've researched deeply or thought about deeply and and change my mind. Uh, I, that is something I really respect in another person. Of course, doing it uh, you know not in a way that is disagreeable or 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 is aggressive or based on kind of any kind of. Uh, uh, animosity, but doing it in a respectful manner, changing, tr- you know, attempting to change someone's mind thoughtfully is, is an incredibly beautiful trait. Oh, amazing. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, the book and everything else that you're up to? Sure. Yeah. Thanks. So my blog is at nearandfar.com. Near is spelled a little different. It's spelled like my first name N I R. So nearandfar.com, N I R and far.com. And then, uh, my first book is called hooked how to build habit forming products. My next book is called indistractable. Uh, and that, uh, you can find out more about indistractable at indistractable.com. So it's in I N distract a B L E indistractable.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. 
While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.